Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live at Nerdville. Today is my very special guest. I'm honored to have him, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. You know him from his band Kiss. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend and yours, Paul Stanley. Thank you very much for doing this. It's a supreme honor. We've been friends for a long time, and I felt odd asking you to do this, but seriously, it's a real honor to, to speak to you today. I'll tell you the truth. When I saw you were doing these, I went, what about me? <laughs> so, you know, I was like, hey, you know, don't I rate? So right. it, it's as soon as you uh, asked me, I said, absolutely. So well, thank, but, well, thank, yeah. thank you for doing this. I have to say the first time you and I chatted was in 2008. I'll never forget it. I was in Bahrain doing yeah. a corporate show for the Prince having to do with the, 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 the Grand Prix, the Formula One Grand Prix. And at that point in time in my life, I had, not, I had not been to the Middle East. I had not hung out with people like George Lucas. And, and it was just a surreal week. The next thing I know, um, I get a call from my office going, hey, um, Doc McGee's office is gonna call you in a few minutes. Please pick up the phone. Next thing I know, they call, and they go, please hold for Paul Stanley. I go, surely this is a, this is a joke. Then you get on the phone and you were saying that your son Evan was playing guitar. And um, for some, I'm very honored that, that my music has influenced him a little bit. And um, he, would, you go, would you chat with the boy and just give him a few words of encouragement? And that was the first time we met, yes. almost uh, 12 years ago. So okay. it was a you you added a special moment to that week because it was the first week time I met Clapton and all these people. And I'm like, going, my life has changed significantly. So thank you for that. And that was how we met. I'll tell you what's really interesting is, is how I judge other people in, in this field or any field um, who have fame or notoriety, how they treat me and uh, especially how they treat my children. Right. And, uh, some people uh, do very admirably, and some people are just uh, a big disappointment. Right. And well, you certainly uh, stepped up to the plate, and uh, um, I know you've spoken with Evan since then. He's, uh, you know, he's uh, he's dedicated. He's one of those guys who I, I hope I've rubbed off in a sense his musical knowledge. And the depth of what he does, I think, in uh, when he was in Tisch at NYU, he wrote a paper on um, the Temptation song "I Wish It Would Rain." Right. I went, that's my boy. Yeah, you know. So I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, when we when we started learning um, from records, you know, I, I remember dropping the needle, making little marks, tape tape decks, rewind. Now, when you go on YouTube, every piece of music has been dissected, and and there's a there's a tab, there's a somebody playing it. Do you think um, it's an advantage or a disadvantage to have all that information right at your fingertips, like so readily available, versus doing it the old-fashioned way, which you may not learn it exact, but it helps kind of bolster your interpretation, aka your own style and take on things. That's, that's interesting. Um, I think that you will always bring in your own um, phrasing, your own uh, um, 
personal touch, even when you're playing someone else's music. I don't know why I was just thinking. I remember uh, going to see the Yardbirds, and I was thrilled to to go. This was uh, 60, I think it was probably 68. And I was thrilled because it was going to be uh, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page together. And by the time they hit New York, it was just Jimmy. Right. And Jimmy was playing Jeff's riffs. And but the interesting thing was he sounded like Jimmy Page. Right. So uh, I don't I, I think we always run the risk of becoming our parents in the sense that we go, um, well, you're not doing it the way we did it. You know, yeah. and, and in the old days, we used to do this or that. Um, times change. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that one of the good things about um, the accessibility uh, of uh, technology is that you also get to see what the level is, what the standard is of what other people are doing. So I think that in a sense, um, even if you watch some of these talent shows on TV, some of them hokey, some of them not great, but if you go back to the days of Star Search or Ted Max Amateur Hour, Right. The the level uh, of uh, musicianship or the quality of singing was marginal. Now, because of the internet, you see the competition around the world and you have to up your game. Consequently, the people that you see on TV on some of these shows are really top-notch, yes. uh, whether anything happens for them or not. So I think that, in a sense, the accessibility of seeing what the competition is around the world makes you up your game. Absolutely. And your access to the world, you know, versus your, your, you know, um, just sitting there with your records and your tape collection and whatever, you know, whatever the record store would stock. Um, one of the things um, I want to go back to, I always ask everybody is how does it all start? Because I always say it doesn't matter if you are stadium filler like yourself playing in a club, you're working in Vegas, or you're working, or you're working in a local band, everybody starts the exact same way. They, there's music in the house, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's some sort of like propensity or, uh, you know, for it and interest. And we all start in our bedrooms just noodling around on a guitar, and then it, and then it goes from there. How did you start? Because I know your parents were very much into classical music mm. and, and opera. And yeah. how did you make that leap from that to rock and roll? Um, music was always so important. And um, I don't want to say essential. It was just um, as, as much a part of life for me as food. Um, right. um, I got fat on the food. And... Um, <laughs> In a sense, maybe I got fat on the music, but my parents, because my mom was born in Berlin and my dad was first generation here, um, they brought a a sensibility with them um, that's very European. And that's the arts are important. The arts, whether it's going to museums or appreciating uh, paintings or theater uh, or, or music is is just a natural part of every day. So. Um, from the time I was very little, I remember being exposed to uh, music playing in the house. We had a Harman Kardon um, uh, 
it wasn't a stereo. It was a single speaker, um, an AM FM radio with uh, a turntable. And my parents would would bring home all this this music. And other than listening in New York to WQXR, which was the 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 uh, they would broadcast live from the Met. Um, we I, early on, I remember hearing um, Sibelius. I remember hearing uh, uh, Beethoven. I I was just completely taken with uh, the Emperor Concerto. And and as a little kid, music I, I think uh, became an escape for me. Almost immediately, I just found myself gravitating to this uh, record player and putting this music on and. Uh, for me, there was only two kinds of music, good and bad, or what I liked and what I didn't like. Yes. Um, and and I think that's, that's something, unfortunately, that's been lost for a lot of people at this point. When, for example, I used to go to the Fillmore, and at the Fillmore, on one given bill, you could see Woody Herman's orchestra, and you could see Led Zeppelin, or you could see Traffic and Iron Butterfly, or you could see Buddy Guy and the Who. Yes. So... I, I, you know, when you have a great meal, a meal has um, a diversity and a a um, a, a uh, I guess a breadth of different flavors. So you have your appetizer, you, you have your appetizer, your entree, your dessert. When you go to a lot of concerts now, you're just getting the same thing by three bands. Right. So. Um, for me, I just found myself listening to classical music, but my parents were also listening to show tunes, so I heard that. And then my parents um, were going, they took me to a hoot nanny, you know, right. to see uh, bluegrass performers. And uh, so the diversity was there. And for me, there was no, there was no doors to open. Music was, was there, and it was just, uh, it was like a room full of, sweets a room full of desserts and i wanted all of them um soul music um as a kid i saw I, um solomon burke um i got to see otis redding um right. um motown philly soul big 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 influence on me and uh at the same time i, I went to the village and saw dave van ronk you know right. john lee hooker so for me, it was it was just more, 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 um, and I I really believe, and uh, you may a agree that your music gains its depth from the the most unlikely sources and yeah. the in the influences that you have that aren't the most expected. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I mean about being in New York, when I lived here 20 years ago, you could still, you were a subway subway ride away from from the Village Vanguard, then the Bitter End. And then, you know, you were, then you could go hit one of the jams that, you know, Sean Pelton and Johnny Rosh would, would, would be playing and all the cats would show up. And there was this, there's this music. What did your parents think about the leap from, you know, classical show tunes, you know, all this stuff to rock and roll. Like, you know, I, I texted you when I interviewed Dion and, you know, like Jerry Lee Lewis, little Richard, Chuck Berry. I mean, all those guys, I mean, there, that was pivotal life-changing music because it, 
it really just was like everything that came before and then everything that came after. You know, it was a real, it was a line of demarcation. Totally, totally. Um, I think that my parents perhaps were amused by it. And I, I remember distinctly, um, um, I guess it was the Marcells that did uh, Blue Moon. And Blue Moon is a, is a standard. And I remember my mom would hear some of these rock, rock and roll remakes of songs and kind of sing the original to me. And I go, Mom, it doesn't go like that. You know, so she was kind of amused by that a song like Blue Moon, you saw me, would suddenly a ball, 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 ball. You know, yeah. so uh, my parents, my parents never put anything down and my parents never made me uh, uncomfortable. I was watching American Bandstand, the original out of Philadelphia or Alan Freed. Um, so my, my parents uh, never thought twice about it. I, I, I think when I said I wanted to play rock and roll music and I was going to be in a band and I, this was going to be my life, I think they, they probably took it with a grain of salt and, and thought he'll outgrow that. Right, just a fad. You might, my yeah. father would sit me down on Saturdays, and one Saturday would be Crosby, Stills, and Nash. The next Saturday would be Guitar Slim and Albert King. The following Saturday after that would be Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick, which for a seven-year-old, it's one of my favorite albums of all time, but for a seven-year-old, that's a, that's, a, that's a big listen, you know, a concept record from start to finish. And, you know, like it was How the same thing. How you lucky know, you were. How lucky, you know, I, I, you know, I was lucky that my parents and my dad really took an interest in, in courage. Cause I, you know, I started playing guitar when I was four years old right. and I knew what I wanted to do by the time I was in second grade. I had no B plan. Um, I know you, yeah, I know you went to the high school of music and arts in New York city yeah. and, and you, you were, you were a graphic design guy, you know, before, yeah. before you, before you decided to go into bands, which if knowing the history of KISS, having that, that background in graphic design is, you know, pretty historic at this point. Well, it's interesting, though, because um, I almost went to art as a default because right. although my, my first passion was music, I was told it was pie in the sky. It was ridiculous. You'll never be able to do it. You know, people who... I've always said that the people who tell you what's impossible are the ones who failed. And right. the people who who are threatened by your, you know, go get them attitude are the ones who want to see you defeated. So um, as much as I loved art, with time, I began to see that um, the the practicality of me becoming really successful in art was slim. Um, when I was in elementary school, I was the best artist in school. Right. When I went to junior high school, I was one of three. When I got to music and art, I was astounded to find not only was the school full of the best from the city, but I had to go, a lot of these people are better than me, which took a whole lot for me to, to, to admit. Right. And I went, I'm going back. You know, I never, I never, um, had abandoned it, but I went, it's music for me. And I remember, um, and I, I don't recommend anybody not have a plan B, but, but some of us are, are, are 
compelled. We, we just, we have no choice. Um, maybe it makes us work that much harder. I, I've said to my, my, my children, um, I said, you know, the one thing about not having a plan B was that I, I worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because otherwise I was screwed. Right. You know, I, I had to succeed. Right. I, um, so, um, music and art was a, was eye opening for me in many ways. It was eye opening for me to, to see that, um, my chances of, of becoming a successful artist were fairly slim. And although I was very shy, I knew that there was, um, there was something if I could break through, um, that I really had something. I, I, I'm sure, you know, uh, we all have these epiphanies. I remember thinking to myself when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and I couldn't play the guitar at that point. And I was a little chubby kid with a, a deformed ear and deaf on one side. And I watched them and I went, I can do that. And I didn't mean I can be the Beatles, but I thought I can touch that nerve. Right. Why would I think that God only knows, but I think more of us need to to listen to that inner voice because it, it's pure. Yeah, it's the intuition. You know, I mean, I, I had a saying that I would tell myself years and years and years ago that if you start out your adult life with your back against a brick wall, you have no other option but to move forward because you can't go any further back, you know. And I never had a plan B because I said, I can't live without playing music. I can't live with myself if I just abandon this and when the times get tough and there's been ebbs and flows in my life and career and stuff like that. And you go, well, I still love it because intrinsically I'm still that four-year-old kid in his bedroom playing and jamming along with records that, um, you know, that, that I love. So what I want to ask you is um, when, you, when you got out of high school, you formed a band called Rainbow and then, and then after that, you you were you were in a band with Gene called Wicked Lester, and that's mm -hmm. how that's that's how it kind of. And you guys actually recorded a record, which I didn't know that. I, I as as I was doing my research, I'm like, oh, there's a there's an actual record. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Um, um, how did you guys? You know, like, how did you? You know, when when that when that band formed Wicked Lester, was it was it more like? the archetype of what kiss would be or was it a, was it you know because i know sometimes like even elton john was in like a blues band before he became elton john was it oh he was he was playing yeah, yeah he was playing with um brian Og was he playing no he was playing with um long john baldry right yeah and and then you know like backing up cats like you know johnny hook or anybody would come to england and they needed a band you know so was it was wicked lesser more of a, a a follow the trends or was it just instantly you can recognize this is the dna of kiss Oh gosh, it was a, uh, it was a hodgepodge of <clears throat> whatever was current, and um, um, when we did this album, um, it was real interesting. We we um, did it at Electric Lady, which was magical. I mean, right. yeah. to, to be allowed in that stu studio under any any uh, um, you know circumstances or pretenses was amazing. Um, but what had happened is, um, in my neighborhood in Queens, there was a head shop. Head shops back then were the places where you bought rolling papers and 
and crystals to look through and yeah. and black lights and all all that kind of paraphernalia. Anyway, I used to hang out there and one day I went in and they said, "Hey, there was a guy in here from Electric Lady, so we got his number for you." And I, I looked at the piece of paper and it had a number on it and it had the name Ron and it had another part of the name which I couldn't read. So I called Electric Lady and I said, "Is Ron there?" and they said, "Which one?" <laughs> Uh, and they said one name and then another name, Ron Johnson. I said, Ron Johnson, because it was the easiest name for me to remember. So I spoke to his secretary and he wouldn't come to the phone. He was a house producer there. And back then, uh, um, you know, ultimately you, you'd have two studios. Zeppelin would be in one, um, Stevie Wonder's in the other, Beck is in one. Um, mixing humble pies and the other, and it was 24 hours a day. But anyway, um, back to, um, I kept calling, and finally I said to this secretary, "You tell your your uh, boss that it's because of guys like him that bands break up." <laughs> that got him to the phone. That's great. And That's he came great. to see us, and said, um, "You guys are as good as." It was either the guess who or. You know, something like that. And I was like, thanks, you know, I guess. Anyway, we went into the studio and over a year's time did a spec album. In other words, we were working on spec time. If a, if a session was booked from noon until seven in the evening, we would show up around six so that we could jump in and use the unscheduled time. Sometimes those, those, uh, Sessions would go hours and hours beyond, and we would just sit and wait and then go in. So over the course of a year, we put together this hodgepodge. Um, and mind you, we we really were listening to the producer. We were just neophytes. We were just kids. And uh, if if the hit song of the week had a banjo, there was a song with a banjo. With a banjo, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Another song, wah-wah pedal. We got a, another song, a euphonium, which is a, a right. horn. <laughs> um, and by the, by the time it was done, it was uh, not great. Me trying to, to sing with a, a rough voice sounded like, you know, a, 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 a kid trying to do Tom Jones. You know, it was right. horrible. Yeah. And, um, Ultimately, we got signed to Epic, and Gina and I both realized this this was not what we wanted to do, and we weren't happy. The band wasn't, um, you know, there there was no chemistry and no no um, there was no passion or focus like we had. So <clears throat> we broke up the band, which was crazy because we had a, a a record deal, and uh, we put together. Kiss. I mean, right. um, that's really what happened. And and uh, Epic, the the heads of Epic came to our loft on Twenty Third Street and saw Kiss, and right. passed. And wow. Passed. Yeah. See, I think and, everybody has that story. I think everybody has that story of like you know, um, there's there's a there's a there's a there's a blues label in Chicago that passed on both Robert Cray and Stevie Ray Vaughan within a couple of years. I mean, there's 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 
there's everybody has these stories with ah, no, this never going to work. But you know, one of the things about the formation of Kiss <clears throat> for the younger generation who who doesn't realize, and me being a guitar collector, I used to scour the classified ads in in publications, and you met Peter and Ace through a classified ad in the yep. Rolling Stone and in the Village Voice. Village Voice. Yeah, and, and you're like, it's like. That's when actually people actually went through them and high, with a highlighter and actually yeah. called the number and totally. you know and then it's you, a different time you know totally yeah it, it was uh, it was interesting and and what became the norm over years um, the idea of promoting yourselves and putting up flyers and everything that started back then um, before we would do a show in New York which we were self promoting we would uh, rent a ballroom at a hotel. Um, the night before, for a few nights before, we would put up flyers all around the city. And uh, then the afternoon of the show, we had no road crew. We would load in the gear so nobody would see that the band right. was loading in their own gear. And then we had speaker cabinets that looked great, but they had no speakers in them. Right. <laughs> so we would tell the, the our, our guy who was working the one spotlight, don't put the light on the speaker boxes because if you do, you can see right through right. them. Right. But um, yeah, you know, um, look, when I met Gene, I didn't particularly like him. And uh, but there was pragmatism involved. You know, you, you have to prioritize and figure what's most important to you to to reach your goal. And right. um, I knew that Gene and I were much stronger together than me alone. I'm not really sure that he knew that, um, but that it became irrelevant. You know, it, it was uh, how do I get where I want to go? How do how do I achieve what I want? And uh, Gene was uh, essential to it. And uh, here we are, 50, 50 plus years later. Wow, it, it's uh, astounding and. Uh, we we've created something that uh, seems to will seems like it will outlast us. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things you know, like you know, I mean, the, the I always say like the like I've had I have a few songs that people know that I play and come to the shows and they clap when I start them. They're not hit songs; they're just well-known songs within my little community. You guys have a, literally could play a two-hour show and play all hit songs. Like, you know, I mean, like, you know, I was made for loving you, rock and roll all night, Detroit, rock city, the list goes on and on. Strutter, love gun, keep going. And one of the things I, you know, I asked Neil Sean last week was, does having that catalog, knowing that there's an arena full of people out there, stadium full of people out there that's going to sing every word back to you, that's going to, you know, hum every guitar solo note for note, does it, does it, does it, after a while, even how great it is to have it, does it, does it become confining create, you know, creatively in the sense that you, maybe you want to change the arrangement to an iconic song? Hey, let's try Detroit, Detroit Rock City with an extended solo, or let's do something kind of, you know, let's do halftime versions of something. Can you do that and then do the fans accept that, or is it you got to give them the, the, the template that you created? Well, you, the key word is, what you said, you said, you gotta, we don't have to, but it would be pointless, counterproductive. Look, I remember going to see bands 
who, and I was waiting for my favorite song, and suddenly they change into a reggae tune or something. Right. Why? Because they're bored. Right. Well, I paid. I paid, and I've been waiting to hear that song. So do me a favor and play it the way I love. Right. Um, or if you want to play it your way, understand that people may not show up. You right. know, and um, I'd rather celebrate those songs um, and give them the respect that I think that they're due because I love those songs. I really, um, I'm proud of them, but I'm also um, so connected to what those songs have helped me achieve and people who listen to them uh, tell me all kinds of great stories, uh, what those songs mean to them. As far as um, being confined, um, there's loads of avenues. Um, soul Station, um, you know, my, my, my Motown Philly soul band. Look, I get to, to not only write songs for that, but I get to do songs by the stylistics, the OJs. Right. Um, so I can do anything I want to. I started in Phantom of the Opera. So um, it's not confined. Maybe there's a, I'd like to think maybe there's a time and place for everything. Um, I saw Journey probably, oh, seven, eight months ago. And every time I go to see him, I want him to sound like Journey. Right. Yeah. Uh, the exception to that, I guess, is um, I remember seeing Zeppelin in 69 and they did a version of school days chuck berry right they just killed it man i mean you know they made it their own but that that to me but it wasn't their song yeah uh, yeah they they they're a different they were a different animal and there are bands that are different animals than we are for example and for us to become a jam band is just not what we do and m those songs people want to sing along with them and if yeah. all of a sudden you know we're going to start dropping beats you know <laughs> or, or or changing time signatures that's people come to our shows to celebrate it's um to me it's a cross between rock and roll church which is funny because i'm jewish but um that and um, a game show. It's just for the circus. Right. It's um, it's empowering for everybody who's there because the band has always been underdogs. No matter how big we become, we there are people who look down their noses at us, and there are people who um, um, snicker at the people who like us. So when you have these big groups of people together it's almost tribal um yeah. but uh part of part of uh, what's important to me is to give them what they expect and more and musically that means being true to those recordings yeah i mean and you know one of the things i always found that i i'm not in the guitar business i'm not in the you know suit and sunglasses business i'm not in the i'm in the entertainment business 
And my job is if people people buy tickets to come see see my show or any show because they they want a night out and there's plenty of places to get the news and politics. There's plenty of places to to have other discussions. When you when you sit in the chair or you stand and and you want to see your favorite band, I believe it's the band's job and the artist's job to go. Listen, we're just here to entertain you, you know. And that's that's the core of what we do is 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 allowing people to feel good for two hours and whatever um at, at a crack and then they walk out and go man that was a great night out and i can't wait to see him again and don't we all need that you know um, right. um you know the idea look if you want bad news turn on the tv right if you want bad news turn on your radio we all need to, to get away from that we all need a respite um Honestly, I'm not going to be on stage singing about saving the whales. That may be important, but it's not important tonight. Yeah, and, that, and that's a different kind of artist. You know, there's there's protest singers like Woody Guthrie, Richie Evans. There's there's everyone that you know that they start off as protest singers, and they and that's that's their gig. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, um, just being a, a singer, and you know, you go out there, you got to play four or five shows a week. When you did Phantom of the Opera and that schedule and the, that demanding kind of, you know, that demanding Broadway type of schedule, um, how did you find yourself changing your singing technique or just your daily routine to, to you know, those shows come fast and furious and it's like day to day, day to day, day to day. And you're like, oh man, I really could just use a break here. But you can't because there's thousands and thousands of people who paid to see you and you feel you owe them the 100 percent of whatever percentage you have how did you manage the the, the voice during the the during the phantom of the opera well it was um it was uh really interesting for me because it was a different technique in singing and i was damned look i loved that show and it was another one of those epiphanies um i saw it in london in 88 and there was a moment in the show where i went I can do that. Not I can, it was, I can, I know what that's about. I, I can touch that nerve. And 10 years later, interestingly, CAA called and said, you're interested in doing theater. And I said, yeah. They said, well, uh, I said, what is it? They said, Phantom of the Opera. And they said, well, you have to go to New York and do a full audition. I said, I'm in. So anyway, um, I was determined. There was no way I was going to do a rock and roll version of right. Phantom of the Opera. So it meant changing my vocal technique. And I, I had somebody up there who was really spot on. He said, you know, they hired you, obviously, because, uh, you know, you, you have notoriety and fame, but also because you can sing this. So we didn't work to change my singing as much as change the technique and the tone of it. And uh, eight shows a week. Eight shows, uh, yeah. Eight shows a week. Um, plus... You're um, working with people who've done this their lives. These the people in the cast have gone from show to show to show, and I'm like a mutt, you know. Right. And, and uh, but I was also determined. I never worked harder in my life. I mean, rehearsals. You you don't rehearse with the cast, by the way, because the cast is doing the show. Right. You're you're going to be dropped into it. So you're rehearsing with a a few of the understudies. Um, 
But in any case, uh, it, it, what it came down to was uh, warming up every day before the show, um, sometimes twice a day, um, not going out, not drinking any alcohol at all um, because it just dries out your throat. It was, uh, it was great because it wasn't something that I was um, opposed to. I think discipline is the key to longevity and quality. And um, I embraced the, the whole regimen. So um, I was supposed to do, I think, three months. The show would run 10 years. And uh, I was supposed to be the next to the last phantom. They wound up paying the contract out of the guy who was supposed to be the last one. And I did uh, the last six months of the, and, and closed the show after 10 years. Wow. So you know, it was great. It was, uh, I was in heaven. It was another, you know, another, um, uh, another dimension. And again, it's to be in that, to be in the, the, the sweet shop, the candy shop and get to taste another, uh, another sweet. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing. You know, uh, one of the things I find after a very long tour, very demanding tour, is the last show, of halfway through the last show, final night, you get to go home tomorrow. Your bags are already packed. Your arrangements are already made. I find, and it's just me, that halfway through, even though my brain's saying you got another hour in this thing, my body just starts saying, nope. You're, you're, I start... My voice starts cracking. I start making crazy mistakes that I haven't made. At the end of a six-month Broadway run like that, I mean, when you hit the halfway point of the last night, did you were you like, oh my god, I can't believe I did this? And and did you want did did you wish it wouldn't end? Or by the end of it, we were going, I'm glad I did this, but I could really use a break now. Um, actually. The, the, the time I went, I can't believe I'm doing this, was before I made my first entrance the first night. Right. It was like, what have I gotten myself into? You know, it was, uh, it was like, one way or another, I don't leave here until the show's over. And right. I was about to go out on stage. But the, the, the last night was monumental because it was the end of a 10-year run of the show. And um, it was... Uh, it, it it meant a lot to me. It, it it was a milestone. It was something that I accomplished um, um, in spite of some people thinking that I would fall on my ass. But right. that's always incentive to not fall on your ass. I, yeah. That's that's kind of I, I don't know about you. That's kind of what keeps me going sometimes. Is nobody is is um, nobody's going to tell me when it's over. And nobody is going to tell me, you know, um, that I sucked. I'm right. going. To, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. So um, the last night was uh, was huge for me. Um, Kiss tours, when they're over, I do find like even now my body kind of starts to. I don't want to say shut down, but it's it kind of loses that edge. Um, right. Because you're, the physicality of what we, we do on stage, 
um, there's no way to replicate that. Um, so you start to ache a little more. The, the aches and pains that, that you ignored become a little more prominent. Have you ever put a Fitbit on and see how many miles you run in the course of a two-hour evening with Kiss? No, but it'd be, it would be a very interesting. You'd be wow! I did four miles tonight on stage. You don't realize it. Funny because I I see old footage of us, and I'm like, did we ever stop moving? You know, right. um, I mean, we're we're doing fine now, but holy cow! In those early days, we were young. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I've been doing these um, celebrity questions on some of these interviews and I reached out to my friend John Five. We all know John and love John for his work with Rob Zombie, Katie Lang. And and I've been to John's house and I've seen his KISS collection and it makes my guitar collection look like hobbyist level. He is he I will, is I'll take your guitar collection yeah, and but he he I, I've never seen anything like it. And I, I, I reached out to my ass and I said, hey, do you have a question for Paul? You know, and he yes, text me back and I have it on the sheet. So pardon if I'm reading while we're doing this. OK, if you could start out by saying right before this coronavirus hit, me and my wife saw the Kiss show at the Staples Center. and It was one of the greatest Kiss shows I've ever seen. My question is, I know where the original artwork for rock and roll, rock and roll over, love gun and unmasked are. But do you know what happened to the original artwork for Destroyer? Good question. Um, that's a mystery. Um, I don't. At one point, I thought that Bill O'Coin had it, our old manager, but um, it uh, it disappeared. Um, I've seen everything else, um, but the original artwork for Destroyer, no idea. No wow. idea what it is. It's there's so many moving parts to an operation of your size that it's just stuff disappears. You know, um, before we wrap up, I always tell people that they come to me and it's like, you know, your business model is very, you know, very good and creative. I'm like, thank you very much. There's a there's a my partner Roy Wiseman is essential and all that. Um, and I always say to the young musicians out there, I said there's two words in music business. The first one is music. The second side is business. And to me, there's been no greater business band with, with forward-thinking business acumen than you guys. And, I mean, you guys own an arena football team. I, I patronize the Rock and Brews at the LAX, by the way. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very nice Caesar salad and a, and a yeah. very, nice, very nice martini before I get on an international flight. Um, Tell me a bit about your thoughts on the music business um, in in modern times. You know, twenty twenty. I know you. Let's take all of the pandemic and what's going on aside. Just just starting now. If you were starting out being a businessman in the music business, how would you approach it? It's 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 a good question. You know, I I'm I'm troubled because. The business model, I hate using those terms because it makes you sound like you're an authority. And, um, but the, the way things are structured now, the opportunities to really make 
a significant living for most it's it's not there because you're owned you're owned by companies um you know these 360 deals where they own publishing they own part of your merchandise uh it's it's uh it's sad um the the whole the whole file sharing or, or whatever you want to call it the the theft of services is what it really is um has put artists in a position where instead of of um uh naming your price you're basically at the 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 whim uh of the people who are saying we'll give you x amount or we'll put it out anyway right that's that's mind-boggling because people who have jobs regular jobs they're not that they're not told that you know you 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 know you set a price and somebody says yes or no you know um for your services so i'm i'm just troubled by the 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 whole dynamic of how how the business works at this point uh, that being said if this is in your blood you have no choice sometimes people come to me and say i'm thinking of becoming a musician i go don't do it if you have to think about it forget it find something else to do if you're compelled to do it you have no choice then you have to find ways to maximize um your your efforts and and in every way possible you've done something very creative by the way um you know you have to find ways that work for for you to maximize the work you're doing whenever somebody says to me i'm just in it to 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 make music i i don't really care about the money you will when you don't have the rent yes yes when 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 the rent when the rent is due when the touring, you know, like we, we did this initiative uh, called Fueling Musicians, where, which was basically a $1,500 package, which is a $1,000 check and a $500 gas card. And we've been giving them away to bands that, that qualify because that's de facto tour support. Here, here's the first 1,000 miles in the van on us, and here's $1,000 for hotels and expenses to get to your first gig. Say you're, you live in Minneapolis and you want to go to Dallas, okay? Well... It's going to cost you some money. And one of the things that I, the, the analogy, the music business today versus 20 years ago is every time I go up to the, uh, a, a toll booth, there is an easy pass and then there's a cash only lane. The cash only lane has somebody in there taking the cash. You know, here's your $5 toll. The easy pass, they just put a little thing on your windshield and you drive through and they charge that to me is ultimately one of the analogies like you know that person working in there is looking to his left or right and sees that easy pass and going that's my job and until you know it's 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 difficult to navigate because all the stuff that makes people want to you know get into music and they 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 just want to pay rent you know all those revenue streams are are being kind of marginalized in the sense we're just going to give it away we're going to we're going to give it away we're going to give it away you can only give away so many free samples and then ask people to buy it. They're not going to buy it. It's already free. Value, value your 
talent value your assets. Um, it's not it's not uh, counter art. It's not um, it doesn't go against creativity to want to be compensated and to watch to make sure that whatever income comes in goes where it belongs. That's not that's not contrary to creativity. Um, and I, I think that anybody who's um, working towards this this goal of of being self-sufficient in this industry, you have to also um, not accept this uh, this is the way it is. you 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 can't accept things as written in stone. You didn't, Joe, you know, what you did is is a lesson and an example to a lot of people to to figure out what works and where you can have you're doing great and you should um, the idea of settling for something because it's the way it's done it's only the way it's done until it's not the way it's done exactly I mean we I, I use it our example is we 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 do our own 360 deal in the sense that everything is in house. Our merchandise, our 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 records, our touring, everything. We don't have you know I don't have an agent. I don't have anything. I mean we just we just do it all in house. And I always try to encourage other artists to do so, especially ones that have a reputation and have have some sales and and notoriety. I'm like, oh man, you could you can kill this thing, you know. But it's just convincing artists to bet on themselves is one of the one of the big challenges and i think the industry takes advantage of it because they just dangle some money in front of you and you go this is this is guaranteed money or i have to set up an infrastructure to to do it myself you know yeah you the idea of wanting compensation today that will bite you in the ass tomorrow yeah is is what you you want to avoid you don't want to get the cadillac you know, and not get the royalties. Right. Or not have enough money to put gas in the Cadillac. That's yeah. what happens. You yeah. Know? So uh, it, it's, it, you have to think long term and you also have to, to um, be creative. Uh, again, the whole idea that um, this is the way things are done. Well, I'm not doing them that way. Right. Do it another way. Paul, well, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Thank you so much. It's like such an honor to talk to you. It's a it's an honor to call you my friend, and I I just have the utmost respect for you and the music and just you know as a guitar geek as well. You know you you and I are like the same kind of guitar geeks and and um, thank you again for doing this. And again, please give my love to Evan and the family. And and you guys are just you know the best. Hey you you uh, you you are are leading. Uh... A, a a whole movement where everybody is following you, but they've got a long way to go to catch up. You you've uh, you've really raised the bar, and you've made you know your life's work being a student of this music. And uh, I admire it, and the the results are based on your love and your hard work. And you know you just have to put the needle on the, the turntable or, or, or press the go button, you know, to play. And, you know, there's a depth to what you're doing that uh, can only come from passion and years of, of study.
Well, thank, well, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, Paul Stanley of the band KISS, thank you very much. This has been live from Nerdville. We'll see you all next week.